And now hear the word of God from Genesis chapters 2 and 3. You can follow along on the screen or in your own Bible. Chapter 2, starting with verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals, and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the, name, the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, or you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? 
The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will make your pains and childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve, because she would become the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man now has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of God. So I want to say thank you to, to Matt and Annie for, for sharing with us this morning, just sharing with us your lives, sharing with us that word, praying for us in, in racial reconciliation. Um, I've had the privilege of getting to work with, with Matt uh, with, with youth group, and, and I can attest uh, what they're sharing up here this morning is, is just authentic, Jesus-loving hospitality. Uh, that invitation to you is, is, is a real one, and, and I would encourage you to take, it, take them up on it. I haven't had the privilege yet of trying Matt's tacos, but uh, I would trust any on that. I'm, I'm sure that they're, they're amazing. Um, good morning. Good morning. My name is Eric Weiner. I'm one of the pastors here at, at Waypoint. If you're new here, I want you to know we, we like to preach through books of the Bible. Since it's a new decade, we, we want to be especially ambitious, and so we've decided to tackle the Pentateuch. Uh, no, that's, that's not a book of the Bible. Uh, it's actually a collection of five books. My family, we ha- at home, we have a Bible basics counting primer for our kids. Uh, it goes through numbers one through ten, you know, trying to help them learn, learn the numbers. And, and the number five is, is for Pentateuch, because we want our two-year-old to know the word Pentateuch. Um, and, and so the primer breaks it down like this. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Old Testament. It recounts creation, the law given by God, and the early history of God's promised people as they prepared to enter the promised land. This morning in the Pentateuch, we're near the beginning of the beginning in Genesis 2 and 3, as we take a closer look at a passage that might be familiar to to many of us, but one that is, is unsettling and yet again reminds us of the God who treats us far better than we deserve. None of us are entitled to the loving kindness of God. 
and yet he gives. Surely many of you have at least heard of the trilogy Dante's Divine Comedy. It's a long fictional narrative poem in which a traveler is guided through the many layers of, of heaven and hell. And in part three, which is called Paradise, the main traveler of the series runs across Adam and he comes with a, a litany of questions. All, all those questions, this side of heaven, we all, we all maybe are curious to know about. Like, what language did you speak? How much time passed since God placed you in Eden? How, how, how old is the earth? How much time did you spend in Eden? Here's a trivia question for you. Anyone want to take a guess on the answer to that last question? How long did they spend in, in Eden? The guys were like, no thanks. I'm, I'm done with trivia. Uh, according to Adam in the Divine Comedy, our first parents only lasted six hours in Eden. Six hours. Of course, this, this is fiction, okay? This isn't, this is fictional. It's, there, there's nothing in the biblical text to, to suggest that this is actually how much time passed. But if you just started reading the Bible from the very beginning, like many of us have, we, we've been reading this Bible plan, it doesn't take long before the wheels go off the track, does it? There are four things that will guide us this morning as we walk through this long passage. In Genesis 2, we see the Lord's, the Lord's permission with a prohibition. We see the Lord's provision. And in Genesis 3, we will see the pervasiveness of sin and the patient pursuit of God. A bunch of peace for you, okay? What we are bound to be reminded of is that the Lord's desire is always for our good. And his response to our sin is shocking. So as we dive in, what was the pre-sin-filled world really like? The Lord's permission with a prohibition. In Genesis 2, 7, and 8, we see the hand of God at work as he formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now what we see from this event is the sovereign authority of God on display. We are formed according to the Lord's craftsmanship from the ground, but we are not constructed from the ground alone. What we also find is that the Lord is the source and the giver of life. There's a personal component at play between God and man. God is the author of life, and he writes life into our story by his mouth. By his breath, we have life. And what follows is this picture of a holy garden sanctuary in which God freely dwells and for which man is to enjoy the benefits of the land's abundance for life. It's to expand out from here. Implicit in the narrative is that man will protect and maintain the order that God has established as his partner in God's holy space. In the space where God dwells, man is welcomed in. This is the context for which God has situated man. Rather than thinking of Adam as, as the first agriculturalist, we should view him as the first priest, maintaining God's order, hallowing his name, all while enjoying the Lord's presence and abundance. Now, it's important for us to recognize that in chapter 2, when God gives Adam instruction, he starts not with a prohibition, but with lavish permission. It's the serpent who changes our minds about the kind of God we think we're trusting. But God doesn't start with no. 
He starts with yes. He says, you may eat freely from any of these trees, except one. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not too sure about this whole Christianity thing. I mean, isn't it all just a bunch of do's and don'ts? Isn't, isn't it just following the rules? Isn't this what Christianity is all about? Isn't the God of the Bible some demanding ruler who requires a level of moral obedience that none of us can live up to? Who would want that? Why would any of us do that? Why would we be a part of this? But that isn't the picture of God chapter 2 gives of us. It's not the picture of God the Bible gives of us. God is serious about holiness and lavish in his gifts. He wants us to enjoy them as gifts that come from him under his provision. And he's not even finished yet. He still has more to give. Now, there is a prohibition that God commands. There is. And we'll explore that more in a moment. But the next thing I want us to consider is the Lord's provision, the Lord's provision of a partner. In verse 18, the Lord God determines there is something that is not good in all of his creation. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, verse 18 says. In reading multiple commentaries on this passage, they all agree that the Lord is wanting to provide for the man a partner or a counterpart. God intends to provide man with a mutual undertaker of a common task. They aren't interchangeable. Having one doesn't make the other expendable but rather that both of them together enhance one another's gifts as they fulfill the tasks and callings that the Lord has placed before them. In fact, in context, their calling is the same, but their participation in this, in this calling is complementary according to God's order. And so what we have that follows is, is the sequence in which Adam names the animals. But the purpose in doing so is to show that there is not yet one who is fit for man. In all of God's creation, there is not yet one who will be a suitable helper, one who can truly partner with him. But the lives and work God made for us is meant to be done alongside others in mutual love. Hear that, in mutual love. British author and theologian C.S. Lewis captures this similar idea in the way he characterizes friendship in his book, The Four Loves. He says, friendship arises out of mere companionship when two or more of the companions discover that they have in common some insight or interest or even taste which the others do not share and which, till that moment, each believed to be his own unique treasure. The typical expression of opening friendship would be something like, what? You too? I thought I was the only one. This is in part what's happening here with man to woman. He's saying to her, you too? You're like me? You'll partake and enjoy this with me? This is a relationship in which there is no rivalry. There's no jockeying for position or comparing to see who adds the most value. There's none of that here. Matthew Henry says it this way, commentator, he says, it is a pleasure to him to exchange knowledge and affection with those of his own kind, to inform and to be informed, to love and to be loved. What God, what God here says of the first man, Solomon says of all men, that two are better than one 
and woe to him that is alone. The Lord God is a giver of good gifts, and he is pleased to give immeasurable riches to those who have done nothing to deserve it. But as we turn to Genesis 3, we must consider the pervasiveness of sin and the loving kindness of God. Now, when I say pervasive, when I say that sin is pervasive, what I mean is that it that is deeply rooted and it affects all areas of life. It distorts our realities. It's desirable to our eyes and it damages our relationships. Sin does this. It's pervasive. Sin is a distorting of realities. Now, as a recap, up to this point, God has established order out of chaos. He has created a land of abundance and has bestowed upon humanity every good gift according to its time and place. And he has tasked people with keeping and expanding the holy space in which they live. Their lives are not their own, but belong wholly to God. And then the serpent comes to ruin it all. In the opening lines of chapter 3, the serpent is described as a beast of the field that the Lord God made. Meaning this was intended to be a creature under the rule of man and woman. And he comes intentionally asking a misleading question. Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Did he? What did God say? Do you remember? Genesis 2, 16 and 17 begins, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's what God said. The serpent is drawing Eve in so that she will question the very instruction of God. Her answer should be, No, that's not what God said. But that wicked deceiver is flattering Eve into thinking that God's word can fall under her judgment. And honestly, we get it, don't we? We like the flattery. We want to be puffed up. I mean, it's, it's much easier to digest than the crass reality of our sin. We're more accustomed to flattery at the expense of others. We'd prefer it. You've probably heard this before. You've heard somebody tear other, other people down for the sake of building you up. It's nice. It feels good, doesn't it? The serpent butters up Eve at the expense of God. His question is worded ever so subtly so as to put God as some kind of cosmic killjoy. In a land of abundance and generosity, God is being framed as restrictive. So which is it? Is he abundant or is he restrictive? The, the, the deceiver is inviting Eve to decide. But do you see how distorted this is? Man is to have dominion over every living thing. Now the creature is instructing the people to question the authority of God. Eve responds with an overcorrection of the serpent in verse 3 when she adds that they must not even touch it. Genesis 2.17 doesn't say that. She also omits the certainty of death. God says you will certainly die. She doesn't say that. Eve's intentions are good, but her overcorrection actually makes God sound stricter than what he said. And her omission actually makes God's warning sound tame. 
the serpent challenges Eve's paraphrase in order to question God's character. And so in verse 4, the serpent denies that there's any danger at all. You won't die. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Consider what is being suggested here. The serpent wants Eve to believe that God is insecure and has something to hide. In ancient mythology, the gods were presented as higher beings with enviable powers, and they would do everything within their powers to keep people at bay to protect their superior status. They were afraid of the people. These are weak gods. And that's the picture the serpent paints of our God. But listen to this question. Does God not want us to be like him? Does God not want us to be like him? I mean, if that were true, why did God make us in his image and likeness? Why would he desire that we possess the same characteristics that demonstrate what he is like to others? The impact of human rebellion has not highlighted the image of God. It's distorted it. They are less like him. At its core, sin dishonors God. It's an affront to his very nature. We, with our lives, say something about who God is. All of us. Did you know that about yourself? All of us do. We were made to reflect his image. Sin aims to mute God's worth and makes us distant from him and his presence. And yet, after even knowing all of that, Sin is desirable to the eyes. It's enticing. It's attractive. Because sin distorts, what is irrational to, according to God becomes desirable according to us. What we see happening here in verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3 is, is it's absolutely devastating. Here in Genesis 3, Eve becomes the one who determines what is good. Why does that sound familiar? Where have we seen that happen up to this point in the biblical story? You don't have to look very far for this, right? Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth and everything therein, and he looked on creation, and he determined its value. He saw that it was good. But now Eve has assumed the place of evaluator. Here's the pattern. She saw that it was good. It was a delight to the eyes. She desired for wisdom, she took, and she ate. And this becomes the pattern in all of our hearts. What we see, we measure for worth. What we measure as good, we, we desire. What, our desires become cravings, and what we crave, we take for ourselves. We have to have it. And what we take for ourselves, we devour, we devour as our own. Sin is a total act of rebellion against God by the whole person. Sin is a total act of rebellion against God by the whole person. The problem is that what, what Eve has deemed as good is the very thing God warned was off limits. And it's at this point that we want to ask this question because it, this gets under our skin. We, this drives us crazy. Why did God put a tree in the garden that we weren't able to eat? Why would he do that? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have just been better off if there wasn't that tree? And I think the answer is to be found in understanding the kind of relationship God's, God desires to have with us. I think God wants us to learn to trust and obey out of a heart that loves him. 
he's, he's not going to coerce our love. He, he wants us to learn to love him. The serpent wasn't pitching a lie that told Eve. The, the serpent was pitching a lie that told Eve to believe a fabricated view of God and herself. There is no bad thing about God. And there is no sufficiency for life in ourselves. The serpent would have you believe the opposite. Satan wants you to believe the opposite of that. We will always have to look elsewhere for life. You don't make life happen. You're not the decider of your future. You don't even have the last word about your past. God does. God is. And God always will be. What may shock you in all of this is that God makes bad things good. He makes bad things good. What the serpent used to distort and destroy our relationship with God, God is using to bring about redemption through his son, Jesus. To hear this, to deepen our loving trust and obedience for God. No, God didn't plan for us to rebel, but God has turned the evil schemes of Satan on its head. What he used to, to destroy our relationship with God, God is actually using that very thing to draw us closer to him to draw us deeper in our relationship with him, to give us a stronger, deeper love and trust for God. That is what God is doing. What we must all realize is that sin is unable to make good on its promises. Sin can't make good on its promises. It can't deliver. Satan offers you shortcuts to happiness that always come back empty. They always do. That thing you think you want in the moment, it's a vain pursuit if it's not according to God's will. In verse 7, Adam and Eve's eyes are opened. They've lost their innocence. They experience guilt and shame for the first time. This isn't the knowledge they desired. They thought they would know good and evil like doctors know how to care for and treat their patients. Instead, they know good and evil like a sick patient who is learning day by day the insufferable effects of a terminal disease. Sin damages our relationships. This is the third, third aspect of the pervasiveness of sin. Sin damages our relationships. The first broken relationship we see here between, is between God and people. It's between God and people. Verse 8 says, The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They hid from him. In the rebellion... Adam and Eve sought to move away from their dependence on God. They decided that life apart from God would be better. It would be better. And this actually aligns with our view of human maturity. I mean, we, we put maturity as increasing responsibilities and greater, dependent, greater independence from parental supervision, right? But this is actually not so in the Christian life. Christian maturity is not that we sin less but that we're more aware of our sin and recognize our need for God more. We rely on him more, not less. This is the kind of relationship that God desires we share with him. Because of the brokenness in their relationship with God, Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. And they discovered something that day in the cool of the garden that we must all reckon with. We cannot flirt around with sin and expect to be intimate with a holy God. Adam and Eve became painfully aware of their shame and feared the presence of the Lord. 
where the Lord offers intimacy and fellowship, he's walking with them, he's inviting them in. Sin provides the destructive lie that it is better to be outside the presence of God, to be away from him, to be away from his presence, to be away from the abundance of life. A second broken relationship is between man and woman. Do you remember the abundance of God's provision that we talked about in Genesis 2? Do you remember what we talked about? The provision of a partner? The provision of life? God gives the man-woman, and filled with joy, he gives this intimate and poetic appreciation for the gift of her partnership. It's Adam's amen to God's, it's not good that man be alone. Now here in verse 12, Adam says, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. She did it. God, you gave her me and she did this. This reeks of blame shifting and distorted realities. But let me ask you this question. Where was Adam when all of this happened? Where was Adam when all of this happened? Verse 6 tells us, After Eve ate, she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Adam was with Eve. He was watching this happen. He was a passive onlooker to the whole sequence of events. He didn't step in. God initially gave the command to Adam before the woman was even formed about this permission and prohibition, about the, the instructions about the tree. And he did nothing to protect her. He didn't step in. Now hear me. Hear me very clear on this. I am not saying women are damsels in distress who need a knight in shining armor. I'm not saying that, okay? But I'm also telling you that I think the sentiment, I don't need a man, is an overcorrection to a cultural teaching. And, and to be clear, men are deserving of that rejection. I mean, we see it starting here. But neither carries the sentiment of loving partnership that God intended. We, we are not rivals. We are not rivals. We are meant to partner together in mutual love and building each other up. Adam is at fault here. Adam's response wasn't one of faithful adhere to God's word. Adam's inactivity tells us that he too is considering the possibilities. Could God be lying? Is the serpent right? Now Adam is blaming God for giving him woman. In fact, what Adam is saying here is now in conflict with what God declared a few short verses ago when God said, it's not good that man be alone. Now Adam is saying, God, I would have been better off on my own. Do you see, do you see how things have, have changed so quickly? The strife that Adam and Eve experience here is so relatable to our home. When we're caught in sin, we, we want to shut down. Or worse, we, we turn our backs on each other altogether. We're so ready to abandon ship, say, I want to be done with this. I'm done with you. We're closer to destruction than any of us ever want to admit. And what's worse is that we, we tolerate this. We call this normal. This is just weekly routine. Pastor Ray Ortland puts it this way. He says, the biggest obstacle to our spiritual progress is that we feel healthy, even successful. If I'm honest, if I'm honest, 
I know what it's like to feel the things that lead Adam to say what he says. I do. Because I have tasted the guilt of my own sin and wish to justify it, to hide it, to push it away, to do anything at any cost. It's somebody else's fault. If I want to find sin, I don't have to look very far. It's always closer at hand than I can even stand to admit. I am a sinner, and I need the God who saves sinners to rescue me. Maybe that's true of you too. But what do we do? We are worse than we could ever bear to, to imagine. Number four, the, the, the patient pursuit of God. The patient pursuit of God. When Adam and Eve hear God coming, they hide. They're afraid. Like animals of the field, they, they act skittish toward God. They were meant to, to maintain order as God's partners. But the serpent offered them a shortcut to bypass the promises of God. And instead, they have become like the beast of the field. And yet, God is gentle and gracious with them. While the death that God assured was set to come, it did not come immediately. Even God exiling his human partners comes from a place of loving kindness. He doesn't desire for people to remain forever in their sinful state. There's still time to do something about it. The garments that God clothes Adam and Eve with highlight that the fig leaves were insufficient in covering their shame and guilt. The garments that God provides for Adam and Eve in verse 21 is a reminder of that. That while we are unable to deal with the cost of sin, God can. He does. And he promises that he will deal with our sin once and for all. The banishment, cherubim and flaming sword of verse 24 show the damage caused by human rebellion. This is very clear. Sinners are excluded from the presence of God. Sinners are excluded from the presence of God. The way back to God will not be carried out by human hands. We'll have to look somewhere else. And verse 15 tells us we are right to have hope. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, God is talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers, he, the woman's offspring, will crush your head, the serpent, fatal blow, and you will strike his heel. It'll be costly. There will be a debt paid for the wages of sin. And what this means for us is that our sin can be restored. We are not without hope. Now, I know that this is, this is a lot to take in for us. This is, this is a, a big chunk of, of Scripture to be walking through. And so I, I want to keep this as simple as possible for us. What, what do we do from here? Where do we go now, having received this? And so the first thing I think we do is we, we need to examine our hearts. We need, we need to examine our hearts and we need to resist the temptations of the evil one. Where have you actively and willfully pursued things that oppose God? Where have, you, where have you decided to belittle Him in place of yourself? Where have you exalted yourself over God? Or what, what do you want to take into your own hands that the Lord hasn't given to you? 
You're saying, God, you're taking too long. I need to take matters into my own hands. I need to do this myself. Can you give that over to him? Can you trust him? Try starting there. Number two, confess your sin. Pastor Ray Orland says, repentance is not afraid of wholesome self-suspicion. Repentance is not afraid of wholesome self-suspicion because it feels an urgency to be right with God at any cost. You don't have to hide from the Lord anymore. You can step into his presence if you'll confess and turn to him. If you'll say, God, I have made my life about myself, but I turn to you now knowing that I have believed a lie about you and me. I want to be made new, God. To live in your presence forever. God, I long for your presence. Would you make me right with you? How is that possible? How do we do that? How do we, how do we know that we can be in God's presence again? Number three, look to the second Adam for new life. Examine your heart. Confess your sin. Look to the second Adam for new life. Paul often refers to Jesus as the true and better Adam. In his letter to the Romans, he says that that through the first Adam came death. The removal of, of the abundance of life, they were sent out, they were cast out. But through the second Adam, Jesus, the new man, the one who, who perfectly obeys the will of God, who listens, who, who, who thwarts the, the, Satan's temptations. Through that man, through Jesus, comes life. One of the interesting things we can say when comparing these two Adams is that both knew what it was like to dwell in the perfect presence of God. The first Adam sinned. He succumbed to the temptation of the evil one and was cast out of Eden to the east. The biblical authors will continue to use this idea of eastward as moving in a direction that's away from God. Maybe, maybe you've seen this, maybe you've noticed this. In chapter 4, Cain is sent to Nod, the place of wandering, and it says he sent in the one, that, Nod, that Nod is in the east. When Israel is sent into exile, they are taken away to Babylon, which is geographically and theologically east of Jerusalem. Now, I point this out because East carries with it connotations of of exile, of of waywardness, of being far from God, being far off. That is all of us. So when Jesus picks up his cross and is cast outside the city gates on the hills of Golgotha, what he is doing there is he is choosing to come to the wayward. He is choosing to identify with us. As we said, we, we can't go to God. But nobody ever said God can't come to us. And on the cross, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is taking on the punishment of our sins in our place. He's being removed from the presence of God, just like we were removed from the presence of God. He is dealing with the things that we can't ourselves deal with. You see, Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23 says this. It says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. Deuteronomy is telling us that that a man hanged on a tree is cursed by God. 
and gives us instructions about what to do this. We, we see this in, in the, the, the crucifixion account. We see what happens when, when they bury Jesus. Jesus became accursed in our place so that we might know the righteousness of God. There is nothing we can do to step back into the presence of God. So God steps into the presence of the wayward and he says, come, take and eat from the fruit of this tree. Take and eat from the fruit of this tree. The cross of Jesus' suffering has become the tree of life. Jesus has stepped into our ruin, in our place, so that we might be welcomed into the presence of God as his children forever. Will you take and eat? Will you take and eat from this tree of life this morning? Would you pray with me? Lord, would you give us ears to hear? God, may we receive this word this morning. God, so many of us, we're willing to admit, we're willing to recognize we make mistakes. But God, we can manage our mistakes. Mistakes don't show that we need a Savior. God, we need to know that we, we are sinners. God, I pray that, that you would open up the, the eyes of our hearts this morning, of everyone in this room, to hear your word, to receive it. God, would you examine our hearts? Would your spirit be moving in us? That we might see that we, we are in need of your grace, God, and you, you have so freely given. God, you have given us everything that we need for life and you give it richly. We do not deserve it, but God, you love us. You love us anyway. We are so loved, God. Would we, would we see that this morning? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.